Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy by Trustark. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. In three seasons of Serious Privacy, we have talked to a lot of people, but never before with somebody who is active for one of the big four. But that will change today. Our guest is Shay Sharon, Director, Cybersecurity and Privacy at PwC here in the Netherlands. Shay has a long history in privacy and data protection, including an internship at the Israeli DPA, but has also worked in tech development. What can he tell us on working for a big four consultancy, advising customers on privacy and data protection? How do companies like PwC at the global privacy and data How do companies like PwC look at the global privacy and data-related developments, for example, when it comes to the EU Digital Services and Markets Act? And what can he tell us about developments in the Middle East? We're looking forward to learn a lot today. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So, all right. So, Shay, thank you so yeah. much for coming on the podcast. Are you ready for the unexpected question? Yeah. Curious to hear what it is. You, you say you are. Well, let's hear it and then... <laughs> Today was delightful because blank. I was uh, looking forward to participate in the first podcast I've ever joined. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that, good that... answer. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then can I reverse the question to the two of you as well? Yes, of course. Oh, absolutely. I always put the screws to Paul on this one. So there you go, Paul. Today was delightful because I'm back in my beloved Maastricht teaching privacy class this week. Both yesterday and today are equally delightful. Because I had a, a full lecture hall with 30 students. Wow. For face-to-face cool. lecturing with lots of questions and lots of interactions. So um, I'm exhausted, I'm drained, but I'm also perfectly happy. Okay. Was Alex in that class? No. Ah. No, he's part of the, he's part of the master's program. So I'm, I will only be teaching to him next year around this time. This okay. is just a beginner's TPO course. Ah, very nice. I need to learn more about y'all's DPO course because that's fascinating. And for me, today was delightful for any number of reasons. Yesterday was my daughter's birthday. The day before was Mother's Day. I'm still just kind of rolling on this whole, wait a minute, Mother's Day was a week ago. You celebrate a week? <laughs> Apparently, I'm still rolling on this whole joy and love and family. So I, I'm loving it. And and y'all don't know, nobody knows. I've been looking for an opal ring that I like for 20 years. Wow. Whoa. I, I like very interesting settings. And all I've ever found is boring settings. And I finally found one and it was $5,000 off. That is also an indication of what you still yeah. had to pay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, if it tells you, I think it was 84% off. 
Okay, that's an that's a good deal, I guess. That's a it, good it deal. was a great deal, and it was Levian chocolate diamonds with an opal, so it was gorgeous. My husband hated the opal in the picture, but went, but your opal won't be that opal, so it might look better when it comes. <laughs> in any case, there is this very interesting website called katawiki.com. You might also find some nice jewelry there. Ooh, see, and the promotion. I like that. <laughs> there you, there you go, and a free promotion. Okay, so kick us off. Paul, do you have an opening question? Well, I'm actually very curious to hear from from Shay how he ended up with the Israeli DPA for his internship. Oh, there you go. Oh, that's a good one. Well, I, I started my professional life 22 years ago as a software engineer and spent 12 years of my life in the IT sector doing all sorts of things. And at some point, I felt that while I did the first internship in, in intellectual property and mainly dealing with patents, I didn't finish it. So I was like, on, on a journey, when can I finish my, my internship and how can I basically accomplish my law studies? Mm-hmm. And at some point in life, I said that I'm willing to do so, but for something that really, really can make an impact and something that really, let's say, helps me to, to support a bit society, but also to, to further develop myself in things that uh, are not always too, too common to do. And I was looking into various things. And then uh, when I saw the Israeli data protection of that really uh, attracted me. And I was already quite senior in the, in the company I was. So when I reached out, it was like, okay, you're already uh, with a family, quite old. You did some different roles. What would you come to be an intern? I would and, ask and the same question probably if he would come to me for such a role. It's a little <laughs> suspicious, right? Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's... That, that, <laughs> But, but that was really, really a passion. And when, when you're looking into something that you want to grow in, then you're willing to make uh, some yeah. compromises in terms of where you are. And We've and, done that before, haven't we, Paul? Mm-hmm. Yep, we agree. And I'm still appreciating the fact that they agreed to accept me. <laughs> so is the film The Intern actually about you? Ouch! <laughs> no. The one with Robert De Niro? <laughs> oh, okay, this one I'm willing to take. The different one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, it, it was an interesting experience from, from so many perspectives, but being able to, to see how things are done. And I think that the Data Protection Authority in Israel is quite unique. Mm-hmm. It's, it's relatively small and you get to see passionate people. We're very engaged in, in believing what they do and I'm happy to, to take part. But that also opened a few, a different a career for me because at some point, Someone from PwC reached out to me and asked, listen, we want to further enhance our privacy services in Israel. Would you mind in stepping in and, and trying? Wow. And being a, a geek, studying and doing everything I did in startups, looking into a big four consultancy firm, um, changing my jeans and all star to uh, a business casual on a day-to-day and even further was a bit of a change. <laughs> uh, but now, uh, basically in two weeks, it will be 10 years. Wow. And I'm, wow. Quite, quite happy that I've done this move because now I get to, first of all, start a new job every couple of months with the support of, of a lot of professionals, a lot of people to brainstorm with, but also very, very exciting clients. So you actually uh, can make an impact in different places. Does that answer the question? Oh, I love that. It does. And you <laughs> resonate with what Paul and I have talked about so, ho- so often that data protection privacy is a helping field. You may be protecting the company, but you're doing it by protecting the average person on the street, by protecting the employees. So I, the, the way you, you express this as you wanted to get into something that helped people, that made a difference, that really resonates with us. Well, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think, 
So what kind of of uh, customers are you currently working with? I mean, you, you don't have to name names. Of, obviously, you are not able to. And let's also stress, you are not you are not speaking on behalf of PwC on the podcast, but just as you are. Legal disclaimer done. But what kind of companies are you working with? Well, I, th- I think we support everything you meet in the industry. So uh, across all industries, be it uh, TMT, so technology, media, and, and healthcare and public sector and others. I'm doing less public sector given the fact that uh, while we are in the Netherlands for four and a half years, my Dutch isn't that good. And, uh, and as such, it's quite a limitation. It's probably mm-hmm. better than mine, though, Shay. I mean... Well, <laughs> we can, we can, let, let's say that my kids really enjoy the fact that I don't speak Dutch uh, because they have, <laughs> they, they have their own language. But, but from that perspective, all, all type of industries, mainly the global ones, so either those that are headquartered in the Netherlands or have a strong presence in the Netherlands, right. uh, as for myself. And, and as such, you can see either huge enterprises, but also scale-ups who are looking to, to basically go to the next further in, in, in their position. And are you more involved with them on the very technical side of things, or are you more involved in the policy, or it really is a blend of both? That's what I love in what I do. It's a blend. Aside from providing legal advice, which we don't, but all the other elements are part of our day-to-day, and, and then you, cha- you get to change hats. So I can have discussions with, uh, with uh, chief data officers in which you speak about strategy. You can speak about uh, compliance and how to make processes efficient, and you can speak with development teams in terms of how to shift left and embed privacy by design. So it really, it really goes in together. And, and I wouldn't be a true consultant if I wouldn't say that everything goes to technology, people, and processes. So it all combines <laughs> stuff together. Right, right. And they laugh at us for saying it, but it really is true. Yeah, I'm, I'm a true believer. So yeah. I think that we, we are uh, human-led, but uh, technology-enabled. Absolutely. So do you see big differences between the customers that you had while you were with PwC in Israel and now that you are in Amsterdam? Well, Definitely. I think that the, the, the scale changes quite a lot. So in Israel, I did support some of the large financial sectors and some of the large companies. But if you compare it, then uh, at least even to, to what we have in here, it's quite, quite a difference. So I, I, in my CV, I, I said that I supported the, uh, a large financial institution in, or the largest. And then when I came here, then when, when you compare the figures, then that's quite different. So right. that there is a difference. And also in terms of the challenging... Uh, elements that they have. So one of the reasons that we moved to the Netherlands was actually to practice GDPR on a day-to-day basis. Um, mm-hmm. So there is uh, a privacy law in Israel. It is adequate to, to the directive and hopefully it will be um, staying. And, and as such, the challenges that we are facing in here and our clients are actually looking into it is quite different. And nice. can you tell us about, there's so many questions I want to go down here. What are some of the challenges that you truly face that that may be, one, it may resonate with all of us. It may be a challenge we all face, or maybe it's an unusual challenge that you never thought you would face. It's a good question. Uh, well, there are different types of challenges. I think that one of them is that we have uh, some of our clients uh, are having some challenges in building the business case in terms of why privacy is important. Mm. And then you get to see there's a discussion whether uh, privacy is, uh, is a cost of running or is it a compliance thing, or could it actually be a business, right. which I'm a true believer. And, and this is part of the thing. How can we build a business case that it's not just a, a checklist that I need to follow and that will resonate? In right. other cases, goes in terms of, of, of the next level of maturity. So we have a framework in place, but how can we make it more? How can we move from uh, something which is process-oriented to something which is actually part of our DNA? 
And then you go into automation and then you go into how to make processes a bit more efficient and, and how to help the organization actually, let's say, implement privacy as part of it. Yeah, I was just looking for a report that I just saw come out by TrustArc that showed, uh, I guess they did a study through one of the big firms, and it came out and showed how much money companies save by using the privacy compliance software, how much efficiency they gain with it. And I wasn't surprised when I saw it, but what I really liked was the fact that now you had hard evidence from an objective third party that could show the amount of money you save by implementing a privacy program or privacy compliance software either way. And I will say, so I I think I know the answer here, but I'm going to ask it, Shay. Do you recommend that companies use privacy compliance software or do you see that companies can be equally compliant using manual processes and spreadsheets? Well, I'll be a lawyer for a second. Okay. It depends. Oh, <laughs> my favorite do, answer in privacy. <laughs> no, but, but, but uh, honestly, I, I think that technology is, is a key factor to, to make things efficient. However, if you have the best technology possible, but there is no people element in it, no training, no awareness, and no processes that tells you you need to use this one, then the technology will stay aside and without your ability to actually make use of it. So I think that it is very important and we get to see that as part of a maturity level in which you get to see organizations that have set their, their privacy frameworks are now looking into further embedding it with technology. Right. Are there any specific frameworks that you are that you are working with or that you prefer? Is it are you more focused on NIST or on ISO or on other frameworks, something that's developed internally by PwC, or doesn't it matter? Well, I, I think it, it depends on the type of an organization and the level of maturity and what they've embedded before. In a lot of cases, one of the inefficiencies that you see is that if you have so many control frameworks within the organization, the, 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 the team is actually conflicting daily with what is the terminology used, what are the things that I'm actually asked to be doing, and how to do it. And, and in such a case, I wouldn't come and introduce a new framework because that will be inefficient. Then I will see how can we find the synergies and actually align security and privacy, but also data governance and nowadays also the ethics part and try to create something coherent. So it really depends on the thing. Obviously, we also have our internal frameworks, which we use, but it really depends on, on, on the client and, and the need. What is the most challenging thing you've done in privacy? Well, I think, I think automating privacy by design is, is one of those aspects, helping shifting uh, and supporting stakeholders in, in making the transition from privacy as a compliance thing to privacy as a, as a strategic element. So it really, it really de- depends. But that's what I like and what I do. So it's, it's every day, every challenge uh, is a new one. And that's part of, of uh, being a consultant, I think. How about you, Kay? What, what, what is the most challenging privacy thing that you have done? I can't decide between engineering or marketing and sales. Getting those teams to understand what privacy means. At some point, you're handling personal data. I don't expect you to be the privacy officer, but I expect you to at least be able to recognize that cookie data, IP addresses are personal information. I mean, that's default. That's a fact. I need you to understand that. I would also like people to understand what cross-border transfers mean in the GDPR. Does that mean the same thing when it comes to China's PIPL? We don't know yet. That's the most challenging thing I've had. So, but I do want to turn around and I want to ask Shay and you both, Paul, a debate that's going on right now. I don't know if it's much of a debate, 
but that you cannot marry privacy by design with risk-based controls or considerations. True or not true? Not true, at least in my opinion. I think, I think that that's part of implementing privacy by design or if you look in terms of privacy in general. No, there, there is, oh, I'm not aware of any privacy rules in the world that says you're not allowed to process personal data. It's all right. about mm-hmm. respecting personal data and doing it in a trust, trustful manner. And as such, if we speak... And facilitating the free flow of data. Agree. Yeah. And, and as such that... In a legal manner. Agree. <laughs> I love that smile, Shay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I like the additions because I think that uh, all together we, we have a full sentence. So that's, that's a great thing. <laughs> yes. Fair point. I also think that it, that it should be possible because in the end, taking a risk-based approach is about trying to do the right thing in the right order, but also accepting that the data protection reality isn't black and white. And also, privacy by design doesn't mean that your compliance suddenly becomes black and white. Data protection law is can be interpreted in very many ways because the legislation is norms-based and everybody looks different on, on those norms. And of course, if you look at a provision like the right of access, which says that you need to provide a response as uh, soon as possible or in any case within a month, well, that month is non-negotiable. You cannot suddenly say that a month has 45 days. We all know that a month has 30 or 31 days, sometimes 28, but that's the way it works. At least once a year. Yeah. So, I mean, th- that is that is non-negotiable. But what it means to be compliant or what it means to, to respect the principles of data protection law or what it means to be accountable, that can be interpreted in many ways. So I think also when you look at privacy by design, Sure, you need to make sure that you embed all your privacy controls from the get-go in your applications or on your website or whatever process you are trying to build and that those are switched on by default, yes. But does that mean you cannot take a risk-based approach? No, I don't think so. That's because my opinion too. It's, it's also about prioritizing. You cannot do everything at once. And although there are people in our field who try to be more Roman than the Pope, which I respect them for and applaud them for, but that is not always the reality of a larger company and a larger organization. Even if you really want to do um, the best you can, there will always there is always the possibility that there are compliance issues. And then you need to list what the possibilities are and what your priorities are. And also that is part of taking a risk-based approach. I like that. And to me, it's not only the priorities, it's the fact that at its very basic Do you need to implement privacy by design for children's data? Ooh, do I have children's data? That's a Mm risk-based approach. Do I have children's data in Europe? That's a risk-based approach. You're identifying. Not. I know some people say, well, you're identifying facts. Well, you're also identifying risks. If I literally only have the data of 10 children in Europe, I might say, you know what? That's not a risk I can identify and manage at this point. I need to manage my data protection for adults and eventually I'll roll in the data protection for children. That is privacy by design because you're designing it around it, but you're taking into account the risk factors that you have. And as the GDPR says, the industry or the sector that you're in, the size of your company, the state of the technology, all of those factor into privacy by design. 
they also factor into risk-based controls. Yeah, I think that's true. But to add to what you said, I, I, would, I, I would ask, do I need to have children's information? And if so, can I block it? And yeah. then I, I would try to avoid having even those 10 and then just yeah. still and do what I... Right. And that's, a ri- and that's taking a risk-based, con- that's taking a risk-based approach because you're identifying the risk and you're identifying how can you address those risks. And that's part of what you take into account in building privacy by design. So, okay. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't crazy. Well, I mean, uh, 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 stop. I could, I, you know, I can easily argue the, 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 the opposite as well. And I think Shay could too. And I think yes. you can as well. <laughs> and that is also what I keep telling the students here. That is also what's so much fun about privacy and data protection yeah. It's not binary. Because you can argue in multiple ways. Yeah, it really is. You can no longer say there's 50 shades of gray in privacy, but it really is. I had someone ask me the other day, well, is it illegal or not? And I'm like, it depends. That's not the question. The question isn't, is it illegal or not? The question is, what kind of risk does this proceed? Can we address the risk? Can we block this data? Do we have to do this? How do we implement it? Do we want to do this? Do we want to do this? How much trouble could we get into? What direction are the regulators going? We we see trends that they're going certain directions. Are we doing the right thing for the people whose data, you know, are we taking into account their rights and their responsibilities and their freedoms? And you got to put yourself in their shoes, not your shoes. Legitimate interest doesn't mean you get to default to my business wants this and it doesn't hurt them. I think that that's one of the beautiful things about privacy. We are all part of it. So the first question would be, would I like anyone else to treat my personal data in the same way that we are dealing with theirs? And then right. I think that, that, that that's the baseline, because once you can answer this question and the, the answer would be yes, then you'll validate that it's something that you're willing to do. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Shay. Let me let me throw another question at you then. So a lot of people say that the perspective comes from what if it was my own data? Would I want it treated that way? What if you're talking to someone who I mean, OK, I'm not just someone. We're not going to isolate it down to the one person. But what if you're talking to someone in the United States who really doesn't have any comprehension of what true privacy as a fundamental right means? That's a fair question. Then the question would be, do you want to be able to control what is being done in process about you? Yeah. Just about having the control. Because everybody gives me uh, this, this argument that you have people that are using social networks and they basically publish everything about their life. Me. And why should I hide if I, did, if I didn't do anything wrong? Right. And, and, that's, and that's exactly the discussion. So it's the right or wrong is more in terms of the fact having the control and the ability as an individual to choose what will be done on, on the information about us. Right. And as Paul and I have said quite often, if people knew exactly what could be learned or held about them, they might actually be shocked. A lot of people don't understand big data. They might be shocked if they knew what we could do with data. I, I, I agree. Uh, and I think that the, the, the easiest example would be I search for something. And from that point on, it keeps chasing me and I get to see all over the things. And people, some people understand how it goes, but not everybody. Uh, and yeah. that, that feels a bit of intimidating that the computer listens to me. Well, and back when I used to travel, and of course, you know, I have the Uber drivers or the Lyft drivers pick me up and they would always, you know, what's the question? What do you do? It's like, how do I explain what I do? So after giving a very short explanation, and here in the U.S., by the way, my explanation is, well, 
do you know about HIPAA here and how we protect people's medical data? They're like, yeah, like other countries with privacy laws, every single one of them protects everyone's data the way we protect HIPAA data. And then they're like, how is it so? But then I tell them, okay, let's talk about something you would never, ever, ever talk about. Let's talk about Norwegian cruise lines and taking a European cruise and stopping in Barcelona. And let's just keep talking about this the whole trip. And then for your own knowledge, you start paying attention to how many ads you get for that from this moment on. I'm pretty sure it shocked a lot of them. I'm pretty sure half of them ignored. <laughs> the question would be those that uh, was, were shocked, did they change any of their behavior the day after? Right. Yeah. I wish I knew, you know, I've, I've never, I, I've only had the same driver on a repeat once. And well, I say once it was the same driver and I've had him repeated twice. And so that was interesting, but yeah, I was able to have those conversations with him and he really was shocked. Paul, you have a question burning. I see it in your eyes. No, I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm still chewing on this. Indeed. There have been, been also many, um, many examples where people say, oh yeah, but I've been looking at, uh, I've been talking about, indeed, these cruises, and now I see those adverts everywhere. It is not because your phone is listening to you. It's also just because you are much more aware. And maybe you've done a search uh, for a cruise and suddenly start noticing uh, those advertisements. Your phone isn't, then you see a lot. Your phone is spying on you, but it is not just listening to you on every conversation that you have. But if you have been searching maybe for vacations and uh, for certain destinations and your profile with 1600 or 2000 attributes already knows that you are a fan of cruising, then maybe that will show up then uh, automatically because you've done it in the past or you've looked at it in the past. And now suddenly you realize, hey, I spoke to Kay about cruises. So now this is suddenly here. Yeah. One 15,000 attributes, I think was the minimum number that came out of Facebook. 15,000 attributes. I thought the number was 50. I'm still not sure if it's 15 or 50, but I'm going to go with 15, which is mind-blowing enough. Two, you're talking about... I couldn't list so many attributes for myself. No, you're talking self-fulfilling prophecies. It's not necessarily that it was true, but it's the fact that now you're aware of it, and now you're making it true. Yep. Privacy, these self-fulfilling prophecies. <laughs> so, Shay, are these also the discussions you have with your customer, or are these... are the, the discussions that you have much more of a legal nature and less philosophical. Shay's going, no one ever talks about this. Okay, go ahead, Shay. <laughs> well, obviously, I, uh, that's, that's what I like. I'm, I'm, I'm among professionals, so I like to speak about this one. But, uh, and, and also with part of my clients, but in, in, in the day-to-day, -day, it's more intense of how can we help solving a specific challenge or how can we help making things more efficient. So it's more in terms of the, the strategic elements and less in terms of the philosophical things. And do you bring your IT background? I know you do, but how much does your technical background contribute to problem solving? I, I well, I, I cannot speak for much of it myself, but I, th I think it does because it, 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 it helps making things more tangible. So it's not about I'm sitting in my ivory tower and I'll let you, I'll tell you, listen, you need to put the, these and that processes in place and to create those automations. I understand the challenge and, and, and implementing privacy is not an easy thing. And I think that that's uh, something that relates to the onboarding of people and people with you. And, and I think we get, we are starting to get there. So people are starting to see more and more the value of privacy and understanding that this is something that is not just a, this shy person is coming and annoying me with a list of requirements. It actually 
provides the additional value. So I, I, I think it does. And it also helps facilitating the discussions in terms of stakeholder management, because if they know you've been through this journey, so it's not about that I'm coming with, uh, or maybe I do, but in most cases that you're coming with uh, irrational uh, requirements or, or uh, reflections. Well, I will say that I always found it easier when working with a company if I could establish myself with a technical baseline. Now, I don't have a technical baseline, but I understand the jargon. So as soon as we could talk about opportunistic TLS, I mean, yeah, but talking about shift left, <laughs> even using something that simple tells them that you understand how to relate to them. What about when you work with companies? Is I, I'm sure there's a client that you're like, please, God, don't ever let me have to go back to that client. But since you're working with global companies, do you find it? harder to work with different or easier to work with different establishments of that company. So if they have one in Germany, they have one in Israel, they have one in Japan, they have one in the US, they have one in Canada. Is Do you find it harder or easier working with different teams and not necessarily based on the locale, but just they have such a different mindset within the same company? Well, in, in, in general, you do see the culture is an impact. So it's not, it's not uh, um, something to hide. But then I think it's all in terms of, of how to facilitate the discussion and showing the benefits to each of the sites and how you actually govern it and, and create it with, with as little as possible harassing them and more in terms of onboarding them. So, so, and I think that even in terms of compliance, you have different jurisdictions looking at it from different perspectives. And in some cases, some may be uh, seem as stricter than the others. But once you understand the principles and understand the reasoning, so why am I doing what am I doing? What am I supposed to do? And how am I supposed to do it? That makes the discussion a bit easier. Good. Yeah. So we're, we're coming close to, to time, Shay. So I'm going to ask you, when Paul asked you to come on our show, I don't know if you were a fan of our show or not, so you might have had to do research as to what we did. That's fine. But was there a question or information that you wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity to share with our audience? Some gem of wisdom or something on your mind or anything? Well, that's a surprising question. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, I, I didn't have anything specific. It's more in terms of the fact that I, I like speaking about privacy uh, and I like seeing our community. And I think that uh, one of the things that have changed in the last 10 years is that you get to see more and more professionals being vocal. And you get right. to see uh, uh, so much content being produced on a day-to-day -day basis and shared. In, in an amount that actually I don't have enough hours in the day to follow. But, but I think that, that it became such a, a, a vital community, which yeah. is, is, well, I think a pleasure to, to contribute to. I'm not sure if that's a gem, but uh, definitely an interesting discipline that we've picked and enjoying on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes, or that picked us. I was, actually, one of the questions I received at some point from one of my clients was if, if I planned this entire GDPR yeah. thing from the first day of my professional life, because I, I, I actually moved from being a developer and building data platforms over to being a lawyer dealing with intellectual property, then doing to the privacy and going to the consultancy pit. So I did public I sector, <laughs> I did consultancies, and I did uh, corporates and also in different fields. But no, I haven't. <laughs> so, so it was your fault. Huh. I actually wouldn't call it fault. I think that uh, I, I, th I think it's, it's, it's a challenging thing, but I think that, that we finally see that the values that it provides. And that gets a recognition. Yeah. And finally, it becomes more and more of, of a strategic thing. You get to see that now also in terms of ESG reporting, 
And then, then trust is a fundament. And then we get to see that the, the hard work that all of the professionals are doing and all of the struggles that our clients are facing and looking into right. actually starts to resonate and also get the market recognition for it. So, Yeah, absolutely. Let me, let me wrap up with a, with a final question. And that just springs to mind. We are recording today on May 17th. So it is one more week until we celebrate the fourth anniversary of the GDPR. Which yep. also means that we will get to an important deadline because officially, as of next week, the existing adequacy decisions will need to be reviewed. And although the European Commission has promises for over a year that the review report of existing adequacy decisions is ready, it still has not been published, let alone that the European Data Protection Board has been able to give us a response on what they think should happen with the adequacy decisions that predate GDPR. But if you have to make a prediction now, will Israel maintain their adequacy decision? Well, I, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> and I've seen, and I, I'm, not, I'm not following uh, the day-to-day, -day, but I have seen that some of the legislations are now actually being placed on the parliament uh, decision, which are aiming to further enhance the privacy legislation in Israel, which, as, as you mentioned, was deemed adequate in, in, in the past. But I think uh, um, additional actions are, are, are good to be done, given the fact mm -hmm. we are changing. So I hope that these recent things and the amendments that were made today it will suffice, because I think it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's a very important thing for for Israeli as a as as let's say a technology leader. So I think it is it is a good thing to have. Agree. Very good. We end on a hopeful note. Thank you very much, Shay, for joining us, and thank you to our listener listeners for joining us as well this week. This wraps up another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like and like our episodes, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app or favorite podcast platform. And do tell your friends and colleagues about us. We still get more and more listeners every week, and we love to see that number slowly increase. I think we are currently close to 800 downloads a week. So I'm really looking forward to that magical moment of 1000 downloads <laughs> a week for our for our podcast. If we hit that, we got to provide a prize to our listeners. Yeah, we'll we'll find something for uh, for IPP in Brussels in in November. So yes, thank you very much for for listening. Reach out to us if you have any questions or suggestions via at podcast privacy on Twitter or for K Heart of Privacy, myself Europol B, or send us an email um, at info@seriousprivacy.eu at or seriousprivacy@trustark.com. And you can also join us on LinkedIn with Serious Privacy. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, 
privacy and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central. Seriously, one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me and Paul if you have any questions.